electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. Welcome to Last Call, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Happy St. Patrick's Day. But on this, on this day of proudly wearing green, the market's covered in a lot of red. The banking crisis does not appear to be over. And investors are nervous, maybe rightfully so. We'll address that tonight. So we begin with your money scorecard. The S&P 500 down 1.1% today, although it did manage to squeak out a gain for the week. There you go. Other indexes, like small and mid-cap stocks, they did not. They tumbled all week long. Now, the bank's still the big issue. Despite a multi-hundred billion dollar backstop slash bailout slash rescue from the government, the financial sector overall tumbled 6% this week. Many of the big names, look at that, Goldman, Citi, Bank of America, all down big. But taking the biggest hits, First Republic and others. First Republic, down another 32% today. 71% this week. Other major regional banks, Western Alliance, KeyBank, PacWest, US, uh, UMB Financial, others, U.S. Bancorp, all deep in the red. Brokerage giant Charles Schwab also down today. This despite a huge stock buy by its CEO earlier this week. Later in the show, we'll show you more buyers. Now, key headlines broke in the last couple of hours, ones that we think you need to know about. Here we go. The New York Times reporting that First Republic now plans to raise cash by selling stock on the private market. That news and fears of dilution hitting the stock even more after hours. It could be another tough Monday for FRC investors. Separately, right now, and dealing with really an entirely different banking crisis, the Financial Times reporting that Swiss bank UBS is in talks to buy all or part, or part is key, of Credit Suisse. Report says the two bank boards will meet over the weekend in Switzerland. The key question is whether this will stop the bleeding and fear of contagion around Credit Suisse, which is one of only 30 banks considered globally systemically important, known on the street as GSIFIs. The market not convinced. In fact, the market betting the risk of a Credit Suisse bankruptcy is growing. Not our opinion. That is based on the price of the credit default swaps, which are now over 1,000. Most banks are below 100. Look at that. So it has been another busy day and another busy week. And let's be honest, if you are not a banking professional or a hedge fund bro, these stories can be confusing at times. Confusing for us, too. We've got the banking issue here, but you've also got the Credit Suisse Global issue over there, which is mostly an entirely different problem. So let's talk it up and try to clear it up with our panel tonight. Joining us, longtime bank expert and Odeon Capital Analyst Dick Beauvais, CNBC contributor and Empire Financial Senior Editor Herb Greenberg, and Semaphore Business and Finance Editor Liz Hoffman. Thank you all for joining us, Dick. Really appreciate it. Want to begin with you. The government coming out with a nearly unlimited money bailout or rescue, whatever you want to call it, program on Sunday night. Some suggested the SVB fallout was then over. 
The market clearly disagrees. Is this banking crisis or whatever you want to call it, is it done? Is it near the end? Where are we? We're in the middle. Uh, basically, we uh, basically don't think of uh, the 30 billion that went into, uh, you know, First Republic. Think of the 440 billion that the banks uh, put into the Federal Reserve to make sure that the Federal Reserve had the money to bail out any other bank, which gets in similar problems. So I think, you know, the fear of uh, a whole bunch of uh, banks failing in the United States is is not valid at this moment. What you really have to fear is where are we going from here? Because, you know, basically the banking industry in the United States has lost the respect of the public, uh, not just people who deposit banks, but people who buy bank stocks. Depositors, you know, before this particular uh, crisis occurred, had pulled, you know, basically uh, half a trillion dollars out of the banking industry, out of the deposits in the banking industry. If you look at the, you know, stocks, you know, basically bank stocks sell today at prices which are below where they were five years ago. So what you see is a total lack of confidence in the banking industry by the American Mm -hmm. public. And that has to be addressed. And the way it's going to be addressed is with more regulation forcing these banks to sell more common equity, a change in the structure of their balance sheet. There's going to be multiple changes which investors are not going to like at a time when the industry's earnings are not going to be that great anyway. Herb, I don't understand why there is such a lack of confidence, given that we basically heard Sunday night, and the president, I think, reiterated, will do as much as it takes or whatever he said Monday morning. We got the full faith and credit of the United States government apparently sitting behind these banks and the stock market and investors don't seem to don't seem to care. I almost said something else. First of all, I want to say just hearing what Dick Beauvais says, because Dick Beauvais is waiting to hear his words through this entire thing. Whatever he says goes because he knows the sector probably better than he's anybody. not on for and no he, reason. Herb, he, he, he <laughs> is. the He is the best. So what I would just say is I think what's going on is Basically, we have the social media fueled yabbers out there, and that is just everyone's got an opinion and everybody is sort of fueling each other's opinion in in that echo chamber. And that's creating this loss of confidence or perceived loss of confidence. Is there really a is there really a loss of confidence when you get out into the hinterlands? You know, I joke with folks, I was getting my hair cut yesterday, person cutting my hair said, hey, what about this banking situation? You know, people are thinking about it, but they're also going outside of the world that we live in going about their days from the best I can determine. Yeah, but, but you know, I would say this one more to, to Herb. Herb, you know this. The, the stocks that are being sold, this is not mom and pop selling these bank stocks short, okay? These are major institutions. These are hedge funds, et cetera. And in some cases, let's be clear, the hedge funds are either trading through or it is the bank traders themselves that are in some well, cases selling or shorting shares of the bank stocks that other banks are actually backstopping. I know that because I've spoken with traders who work for banks who are actively betting against other banks. But isn't it a trade, Brian? Isn't that the point? You've got the, the, you've got they have the trade on. I mean, I think that's what's going on. I don't think it's I don't think anyone knows realistically, but. Look, I know people who are lining up to buy these things on the other side. You know, the banks aren't going away. But if you go by what Dick said, you basically you can make the case from an investment perspective. Why would you invest in why would you invest in banks? I mean, that seems to be the the basic point. You know, Liz, you've got a great scoop up about uh, on Semaphore about SVB's lost 24 hours. I want to get to that in just a second. But I want to I want to get your take 
on this stock sale from First Republic. Now, it's a little bit weird. We're a nighttime program, kind of macro, and we're leading the show talking about a private stock sale from First Republic. I bring it up when most people say, well, I don't care, because a lot of people say that the equity raise from Silicon Valley Bank was really sort of the match that lit the fire. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, just the math here for any kind of market solution, which I would say includes M&A for First Republic, is just terrible. As you noted, the stock is down something like 70 percent over the last couple of days. It's going to be incredibly dilutive, incredibly expensive. It might save them. Um, you know, but, but the Liz, other thing Liz, is, sorry, you, why do they this is I guess this is where I'm confused. I mean, not like as a TV news guy, but like just as a human being. Why do they need why do they need and maybe Dick and chime in after you? Why do they need, quote, saving when the federal government just said, don't worry, we're covering everything. We got you. I have to say, I was actually slightly baffled by the deposit, 30 billion in deposits from the big banks that went in there yesterday. It is perhaps a, a political statement or aimed at the constituency that Herb is talking about. But but First Republic doesn't have a liquidity problem that the Fed has not already said we are actively solving. The Fed has been funding this run. They have, at some point, a capital problem, which is they have an investment portfolio that's totally underwater. And if they have to mark that to market, either because they continue to have a liquidity problem, though it's hard to see how that would happen if the Fed is serious about this, or if they are sold, the buyer would have to mark that at its fair value. And there's an equity hole there that at the end of last year, if you yeah. look at the, where they were marking their, it was something like $2 billion, $2.5 It's only gotten worse since then because we've had a rate increase. So you're looking at a, an equity hole of a couple billion dollars that they can try to fill themselves. They can have the government take it if it's sold. You could mutualize it in kind of a long-term capital mm -hmm. management way, though that's not particularly attractive. You could have the buyer take it. But again, the earnings on this thing are just make that math, that M&A math, incredibly hard. Yeah. I didn't have long-term capital management reference on my bracket, so congrats to you, Liz. <laughs> uh, Dick, maybe answer that. I mean, is this equity raise a good thing, or is it signaling, like, uh, we still need help? Yeah, well, it's clearly signaling we still need help. But, I mean, let's go back to what you said. Why would anybody not believe in the safety of the banking industry if you have the full faith and credit of the United States government behind that uh, offer? The answer is because the, the, the government doesn't have the money to actually back up that promise. There's $19 trillion in deposits in the American banking industry. All right, there's $8 trillion, $8.5 trillion at the Federal Reserve. There's about $128 billion at the FDIC. How is the FDIC with $128 billion going to back up, you know, $19 trillion in, in total deposits, $8 trillion in if you insure deposits? How is the Federal Reserve, which is at the present time struggling to raise money for itself, how are they going to back up a promise to back up all of that? That's it. That's and, and what about the federal government itself? It's broke. It's, it has to borrow money to pay the interest on its debt. Where does the money come from, which is going to back up, you know, the promise to, to uh, protect every dollar in the deposits in the banking system? I have no idea. Nobody right? does. And that, Dick, you nailed it. I mean, you, you absolutely nailed it. What I've been, everybody I've talked to off the record, on the record, Herb Greenberg, that's what they come back to. The market has fallen this week. The stocks have fallen this week because nobody... I'm talking to high-level bank and trading people. Nobody believes it can work because if every bank decided, okay, guess what? 
We're going to call your bluff. We'll sell you back all of our government debt at 100 cents on the dollar, which, by the way, is sitting on our balance sheet at 85 cents of the dollar because of interest rate moves. And now you owe us 19 trillion. The U.S. government is 31 trillion dollars in debt already to Dick's point. There is no way there's enough money. That's all I keep hearing. But, Ryan, is it, but, but that's true. But is that going to happen? It's a great. It's great. It's a great hypothetical question. But is it real? I, I don't know. It, you tell me. Is it? Is it? Okay. And, and let me ask you How do we know it's so not real? Depo- what if it is real? What if Jim Jordan says, "You know what? And, okay, well, but well, we're going to sell you all back our government debt, or at least give us credit for it." All right. Other so then, that, as a depositor, should we all take our money and just throw it under the mattress? Does the mattress actually become the safest place for it? No. I mean, th- think about the other side of the balance sheet. All right. You got twelve trillion dollars in loans in the banking system. They are, you know, American people pay their loans. Even in the worst of time, ninety-five percent of the people are going to pay those loans. And you got a recurring revenue stream from yeah. those loans. You've got somewhat on the order of five trillion dollars in in both cash and federal government securities, uh, you know, which are sitting on bank balance sheets. So so the net effect is there is an asset side of the bank balance sheet, and the asset side of the bank balance sheet is what protects the deposits in the bank. It is not government guarantees. It's the banking industry generates enormous profits. That's what guarantees your deposits. Well well said. Listen, I I don't know if this is over or not. First Republic down another 14 percent, but Dick, Herb and Liz learned a lot. Everybody check out Liz's exclusive on SVB's Lost 24 Hours. It's a great read. Everybody, thank you very much. No matter what happens, folks, the reality is this. The market's telling the story like you got this back, this bank backstop. And yet all that happened was investors hitting bank stocks over the head with a shillelagh. I had to get the shillelagh reference in there because of St. Patrick's Day. All right. Now, we have talked a lot about many of these bank executives coming under criticism for selling millions of their stock just before the crisis began. This show has been the first to show you many of those sales from SVB to Signature and First Republic. But here's some good news. Sully side up. It is not just sales. There have been some CEOs who are stepping up and actually buying their stocks. Here they are. And the data from our friends at Verity Data, specifically the CEO of insurance broker Ryan Specialty Holdings, buy nearly $8 million worth. As you saw here on CNBC, the CEO of Charles Schwab, bought nearly $3 million worth. One of New York City-based Valley National's directors bought $1.5 million worth of that stock. And the CEO of Texas Bank's Cullen Frost Bankers bought just over $1 million worth. One, two, three, four, buyers. Buyers. And let's see if these buys help rebuild some investor confidence. And this is more exclusive content that you will only see right here on Last Call. All right, now to another bank-related story, and this one, (laughs) an entirely different kind. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon in the crosshairs of a U.S. Virgin Islands lawsuit over the allegedly illicit acts of disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. Eamon Javers has the very latest. Eamon. Hey, Brian. In a courtroom in New York last night, attorneys for the U.S. Virgin Islands targeted J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon as directly as we've seen so far in their case, alleging that the bank aided Jeffrey Epstein in his decades of sex crimes. The direct allegations against Dimon raise questions about how J.P. Morgan is going to defend itself here and if this case will have any impact on Dimon's legacy as one of the most powerful titans of Wall Street. 
Last week, J.P. Morgan sued its own former executive, Jess Staley, alleging that if there was any Epstein-related wrongdoing at the bank, it was done by Staley without knowledge of the other executives there. In essence, J.P. Morgan was painting Staley as a rogue employee. But last night, attorneys for the U.S. Virgin Islands said they don't buy that argument. An attorney for the U.S. Virgin Islands said if Staley is a rogue employee, why isn't Jamie Dimon? And argued Staley knew, Dimon knew, J.P. Morgan Chase knew. Of J.P. Morgan more generally, the attorney said, they broke every rule to facilitate his sex trafficking in exchange for Epstein's wealth, connections, and referrals. Now, for its part, J.P. Morgan argued that, quote, all roads lead to Staley in this case. And they took issue with the idea that Jamie Dimon had any specific knowledge here. J.P. Morgan has asserted that Dimon has no recollection of ever reviewing the Epstein accounts at the bank. And today, the bank sent us a statement saying this, it is unfair for CNBC to report lawyers' unsubstantiated arguments as facts. Now, to be clear, we are reporting that the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, attorney made these claims in court. The attorney for the U.S. Virgin Islands didn't present evidence to prove her claim that Diamond knew about Epstein's crimes, but said in court that there will be numerous documents in this case that go beyond Staley's office, quote, to the executive suite. Back over to you, Brian. Okay, so the U.S. Virgin Islands lawsuit basically coming after J.P. Morgan. We know that. Jamie Dimon has been mentioned. J.P. Morgan Chase apparently now upset with us, or maybe just you personally, Eamon. Who knows? Where does this play out? What's our timeline here? Because I, I think it's fair to say there is some legitimate interest in the still untold story of what the heck was going on on Jeffrey Epstein's island. The big question right now is whether this lawsuit gets to continue. There's a motion to dismiss that J.P. Morgan has put out there. They're saying this thing should just go away and a judge should just get rid of this case. We'll see maybe by the end of the month whether that happens or not. Uh, and, but in the meantime, there's going to be discovery, right? That means documents are going to be turned over from J.P. Morgan to the U.S. Virgin Islands legal team. The first tranche of documents that came out in this were deeply embarrassing to J.P. Morgan because they showed that Jess Staley, at least, inside J.P. Morgan, was sending hundreds of emails back and forth with Jeffrey Epstein, a lot of them referencing young women, referencing his trips to uh, Jeffrey Epstein's private island, and making it clear that Jess Staley and, and Jeffrey Epstein were best buddies, right? So that was damaging information that became public. We'll see whether any, any more damaging yeah. information is in the tranches of documents that are still com to come out. Maybe not. Maybe so. We'll see. A lot more to come out, I'm sure. Eamon Javers, thank you very much. Eamon, happy St. Patrick's yeah. Day, my friend. Hey, right back at you, That's Ryan. A, by, by the way, I have Thai Envy. That's a better tie than mine. Nah. Yeah. They're both good. You know it is. Yeah, that's true. Thank you. Cheers, brother. All right. You too. Slancho. All right, up next, do failed bank executives deserve harsher punishment? President Biden wants action. A senator reacts. Next. And the reporter that TikTok spied on. Social media company now under investigation by the DOJ, the Forbes journalist at the center of it, who the government of China allegedly spied on, will join us. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen facing criticism in some circles over her response to the banking crisis. Secretary coming under some tough questioning in front of the Senate Finance Committee yesterday. In one exchange, Oklahoma Senator James Lankford asked whether the Treasury's actions are encouraging customers to leave smaller community banks in favor of the biggest ones. Here's the response. That's certainly not something that we're encouraging. That is happening right now. That is happening because depositors are concerned about the bank failures that have happened and whether or not other banks could also uh, no, it, it, fail. No, it's happening and because it's, you're fully insured no matter what the amount is. If you're in a big bank, you're not fully insured if you're in a community bank. Well, you're not fully insured. Obviously, speaking about fully insured over $250,000, which may be a lot of businesses in places like Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Our next guest was in that hearing. Joining us now is Louisiana Senator and Senate Finance Committee member Bill Cassidy. Senator Cassidy, thanks for joining us. Do you also share Senator Lankford's fears that, you know, a bank in Baton Rouge or Shreveport or New Orleans, whatever it may be, may lose business, lose deposits to the Goldman Sachs and Citigroup's and J.P. Morgan's of the world? Absolutely. I've already gotten a word from one of my community bankers that that is the case. Uh, and it makes sense. Um, the Fed has decided that um, I think its policies are encouraging people of high net worth, people who have over $250,000, to move their dollars to a place which is, uh, per the Fed, more secure. Uh, and obviously, that's going to hurt our regional and our community banks. Do you feel that the Treasury Secretary's job is not a direct bank regulator? We know that. That is, that is the Federal Reserve, regionals, national as well as state organizations. However, one of the Treasury's missions, which is a mission statement that's on their website for the public to see, is to, quote, maintain the integrity of the financial system. Do you feel that Treasury Secretary Yellen is doing a good job? Well, it's hard to separate Secretary Yellen from all the kind of uh, collection of uh, decision makers in this process. So let me just speak more broadly. Uh, I think there is concern that uh, the, that 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 effectively, effectively, the uh, SVB had deposits up to infinity that were now insured. For those who feel that it's like it's like the it's like capitalism has ended. The federal government has almost nationalized banks. It doesn't matter how the bank conducts itself. It can have the worst management in the world, make the worst decisions in the world. But the depositor who has $5 million is going to have her deposits protected as much as the depositor with $10,000. Now, I'm not quite sure that, that that creates a moral hazard. And I think there is a concern that this administration's policies are creating that moral hazard. Since Sunday night and the, the bailout slash rescue package, whatever you want to call it, was announced, 
We don't know if it's actually working under the hood. It's not for us to say we don't know. But the stock market, Senator, is acting like it is not. Bank stocks falling today and pretty much every day this week, some by a lot. Why do you think that the stock market or investors clearly don't believe this is working? Well, you can argue that this is because of SBB, the Silicon Valley Bank. Are you going to argue that it's a response to the fact that we are undoing quantitative easing? We are now in quantitative tightening. And as the money supply is going to continue to contract, and if inflation is not reined in soon, interest rates continue to rise, there's going to be a lot of folks who are whose assets are not adequate to address their obligations as money supply tightens. Now, I think you can draw a line between when things start to get worse for everybody to when quantitative tightening started. That's not to say we shouldn't tighten, but it is to say I think that might be the, the underlying fundamental that's driving a lot of what you just described. All right. Separately, President Biden releasing a pretty hard-hitting statement today in regards to bank executives, writing, quote, when banks fail due to mismanagement and excessive risk-taking, it should be easier for regulators to claw back compensation and to ban executives from working in the banking industry Again, so two things here, Senator. Number one, Silicon Valley Bank bought U.S. government debt and mortgages. Do you consider those, quote, risky bets? Obviously, they have what's called duration risk, but do you consider their actual action to be risky? And do you support clawbacks? You got at least two to three things in there. First, it was clear that their assets were inadequate to address their obligations. They weren't risky assets. They were just inadequate in a high inflation, high uh, interest rate environment to meet the obligations they had. This was known. This was known at the end of the last quarter. The regulators didn't know it, but like everybody else knew it, people were tweeting and blogging and uh, uh, shorting the stock because they understood it. Now, it isn't that their investments were not safe. It isn't that they, they did not pursue an investment strategy adequate for a high interest, uh, high inflation environment. And to that, the board and the um, president of the bank should be held accountable. Next, as regards, should we claw back? If some guy's selling stock two weeks before he goes into receivership, I got to admit that really bugs the heck out of me. Uh, and, uh, and to that mm-hmm. person, uh, I, am, I am okay with clawing back. He knew last quarter that things were inadequate, did not take the appropriate measures to address it, and he's going to cash in his stock before everybody knows. Lastly, to Biden's point, what about the regulators? If you're going to somehow punish the head of the bank, and yet the regulators should have known that, I mean, people are tweeting about it. Yeah. People are selling the stock short, but the regulators are asleep at the switch. I'd like to see some accountability there, too. Yeah, uh, but obviously the political narrative on one side is that uh, that this is a regulatory issue because the rollback of the 2018 provisions in Dodd-Frank, most people I've spoken with don't, don't agree with that. But it's all politicized like things are in 2023. Senator Bill Cassidy, the great state of Louisiana. We appreciate it, Senator. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. All right, still ahead on Last Call, a bombshell story on how the White House apparently tried to tell the Fed what to say about reasons why SVB collapsed. Is this Biden versus Powell? We'll talk about it coming up. (laughs) 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back. Today's RBI is more like an SBI, short but interesting, because with so much going on, we're going to keep this one tight. Lost in all the bank turmoil is the fact that a company connected to banks, literally connected to banks, is experiencing its own terminal. Now, you may not have heard of the company Diebold Nixdorf, but you definitely know it. They're one of the biggest makers of ATM, you know, cash machines. In fact, the next time you're taking money out of a bank, look down and you'll probably see that it was made by Diebold Nixdorf. But the company is suffering. It said it's having liquidity issues and the stock cratered today, losing half its value. A couple years ago, this was one of the best performing stocks in America. It was red hot. Now it's ice cold. And despite my horrible fake German accent, Diebold's actually an Ohio-based company, Hudson, Ohio. And so we are rooting for it. We don't want to see anybody lose their jobs. But we did kind of find it random but interesting that a company who helps people take money out of a bank is having some money issues apparently of its own. If that's not a sign of the times right now, we don't know what is. All right, next up. An explosive new story in the New York Times details some tension between Fed Chair Jerome Powell and the Biden administration, all centering around the government's decision on whether to rescue Silicon Valley Bank's depositors last weekend. According to the New York Times piece, Biden officials effectively, we're summarizing, wanted to force the Fed to insert a line into the Sunday night rescue that, quote, shortcomings in financial regulation, end quote, caused SVB to implode. But Powell blocked those efforts. I mean, who could blame him? But it likely enraged the White House. So let's talk more about all this with our all-star panel. We've got Operation Hope, John Hope Bryant, CEO. We've got Bethany McLean, CBS contributor, Vanity Fair contributing editor, and Skybridge Capital founder, Anthony Scaramucci. All of you, thanks for joining us. Mooch, I'll start with you. I mean, can you, believe, can you blame Jay Powell? The Federal Reserve is basically the main regulator of banks federally and, and, and regionally, and he's being asked to insert a line that basically says, you guys screwed up. Why would Powell put that line in and basically implicate him and his own team? Well, let's talk quickly about why the Biden administration wanted to put that in. They're, they're looking to be even more aggressive with the, the, the Barney Frank, uh, Dodd-Frank legislation. They are upset about the 2018 rollback. And I think as it relates to Jerome Powell, it was the right call for him uh, because ultimately it wasn't the regulation that caused the failure. It was a lack of interest rate hedging at the bank level. Yeah, yeah. But, but John, you know that this has become, whenever you use words like um, bailout, you know, things like that, it becomes intensely political. And, and the president and, and the Democrats are going to step as far away from this and say, oh, no, it was regulation that was the problem. It was the, it was the former guy. Well, you know, every good marriage is made of constructive friction. I actually uh, agree, actually, with I'm gonna with use, Andy. I'm going to use that line. <laughs> when you get home, make sure you use that one. <laughs> but, but smile when you're saying it. Uh, I actually agree with what Anthony uh, just said. I also believe that this we have three forms of government 
uh, for a reason, right? The executive branch and legislative, et cetera. And, 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 and Jerome Powell does not, does not have a self-esteem problem. So every White House wants uh, the, the, to, to make a view that it affects public opinion because that's a, a, the public bully pulpit is what they're using to guide the economy and, and society. And the Fed is using very tight instruments to try to guide the economy. You know, sometimes those things get uh, twisted up. I think that uh, to go beyond what Anthony just said, this was not just uh, the inability to hedge. So the CEO made a mistake. I know him. Um, but also there was a fire alarm call by some Silicon Valley leaders that I thought made a bad situation worse. And I guess we won't have time to go into that. No, well, you, you just said, I know him. You know Greg Becker? I've, I know most people in banking, yes. Uh, Operation Hope deals with all of these banks. I know the CEO of First Republic and, and that institution. I was chairman of their community advisory so board. What? During so, the- John, I love it. Tell us, what, what do you think happened? Who else is responsible here? Becker's uh, apparently I, hiding in Maui. Maybe. I think the, wait, hold on, I love Maui now. I'll go there twice a year. Not, not I think, Maui. I, I think that the, the, the world, the country needs the financial literacy. I mean, it appears that we all just sort of miss the memo on how banks run, uh, that it runs on trust, it runs on faith, that you have, you know, you know, hopefully 10 cents of every dollar that's capital, the rest of it, you need the confidence of the system uh, to make it work. And when you have some leaders who are telling everybody to pull every dollar you have out of this bank, uh, and they did $40 billion in one day, a million dollars, a million dollars a minute. Uh, it is really hard to turn that situation around, even if you want to. Uh, and now you have all these leaders in Silicon Valley who are now asking to invest in a safe bank. Well, they could have made that one a safe bank if they had invested some billion dollars into that to, to fill the hole. But now you have lines of credit and, and term loans and all the uh, payroll and all the other stuff that is tied to that bank and the intellectual yeah. pro- talents have gone away. 39 years of knowledge of Silicon Valley gone. It's a different topic, maybe a different segment. I think this was a this was really a disaster from all sides. It's, Everybody contributed. Uh, I, to this. I think we can all I, I, I would agree with you. Let's I want to hear what Bethany thinks. So, Bethany, by the way, you know, you 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 wrote literally wrote the book on Enron. You, and I'm not comparing SUV to Enron yet. However, to John's point, Bethany, my guess is when this thing finishes, we're going to figure out there's a lot more stuff that we don't have any idea about right now. Well, first of all, I want to be a little harsher than your other two guests. I think that line was absolutely right. I think the Fed does bear a huge portion of the blame here, not because of the much talked about rollback of rules in 2018, but rather because it's the Fed's job to regulate Silicon Valley Bank. The warning signs, the red flags have been written about a lot. They were everywhere. Forget about the stress test. Forget about the liquidity ratio. Just look at the other problems. This was the Fed's job. And yet you had Jerome Powell saying in congressional testimony on Tuesday that the U.S. Bank Banking system was well capitalized and that he had no intention of strengthening any of the rules surrounding surrounding smaller banks. So I think that line from a from a from a from a from a real perspective should have been in there. Should it have been in there, practically speaking, when what they're trying to do is restore confidence in the U.S. banking system? Well, no. Saying that the people in charge of keeping the U.S. banking system safe have screwed up doesn't exactly restore confidence. No. But it's true. <laughs> And did they, but but here's my beef, Bethany. Okay, you're you're an awesome journalist, so you know you kind of dig into stuff and you got to figure it out and kind of wait some things out. We were getting, it's like a sports talk radio show. We're getting hot takes from the White House and senators Sunday night and Monday morning saying it's the rolling back of 2018, some provisions in Dodd-Frank, which nobody I've talked to thinks that's the case. 
But they were already telling the public, who for this was all new, what happened. So either they knew and weren't telling us, or they don't know, but we're just throwing that out there because they know that no one's going to push back on them because they're super powerful. I just think in a super politicized world, it's the easiest thing to do, right? Blame the other guy. That's um, it. Look here, don't look over there. And it's just a continuation of more of the same in American life, but it distracts from the real problem. Yeah. Mooch, you agree with that? I mean, just the finger pointing is epic. Oh. You know, I, listen, I'm, I'm not going to debate Bethany because she's always so well prepared and I'm looking forward to her next best selling book. But here's what I would say. You got a real systemic crisis now. And ultimately, you're Is probably going to have receiver banks that 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 you you get your money in where you, they don't lend it out and they charge you a large fee for storage. I think that could be coming Brian, and that's a scary proposition because that is a very deflationary thing. Yeah, you're, well, you're an ex-Goldman Sachs guy, Anthony. I mean, are you concerned? Listen, you know what? Suddenly the big banks are in vogue. I thought, I thought we sort of hated the big banks. Now vampire squid, all that stuff. Now it's like we're cheering the banks on. They're going to get bigger at too the expense of the fail. regional banks. They're just too big to fail, and they're going to migrate those deposits unless the Fed and the White House and the legislature can come up with a creative plan to stop the evaporation of the regional banking system. And the last point here is that small businesses rely on that system. And all of us know that that's where the job growth is in that's the United it. States. It's generated from the small businesses. John, final word, quick please. Yeah, I think, so I think Bethany is technically correct. Um, uh, it, but you can win the battle and lose the war here. America, the largest economy in the world, works on faith. It actually works on hope also. We don't have time to get into that, but I can I can actually make that a mathematical formula, like six million people in LA and, and 10,000 police officers. <laughs> okay, that only works if people play by the rules, do the right thing, stop the red lights on their own. And this banking system requires trust from average people that Operation Hope serves. And so the, the message has to be to everybody, hey, your deposits are safe because again, 70% of this economy yeah. is consumer spending is the average person. We need community banks to be successful. Well, you know. We need the banks, but we need the community banks too. By the way, First Republic Bank had nothing to do with the Silicon Valley thing. This is contagion, which we need That's right. to make them stop. And so I think we, go ahead. No, no I was gonna say, John, sorry to cut you off. We'll get you back on soon, because you know who this is gonna hurt most, the lower credit quality borrowers, right? The 650 credit score, 600s, they're not gonna be able to get mortgages or car loans. The rich people are gonna be fine. And as the people that are sort of the bottom end of the scale are gonna get screwed again, because these banks are gonna go ahead and tighten up all their credit standards while they figure out what the heck is on their books. I'd say Patrick's Day, I need a drink now. Anthony, John, Bethany, really appreciate it. God, how much longer in this show? All right, thank you. All right, can I get a Guinness over here, please? Anyway, it's called Last Call. Still ahead, she is the Forbes reporter that TikTok's owners spied on, and now the DOJ is launching an investigation into her surveillance. Emily Baker White joins us on Last Call to speak out. All right, welcome back to Last Call. By the way, happy St. Patrick's Day. There is some big reporting out of Forbes. The Justice Department is investigating ByteDance use of tech TikTok to spy on journalists. ByteDance, of course, the parent company of TikTok. With us tonight is one of the reporters who was spied on through TikTok and had been covering this topic for a while. Forbes technology reporter Emily Baker White. And we want to say, Emily, this is not like us speculating or you thinking I got spied on. The company 
admitted it, didn't they? Yeah, that, that is true. ByteDance and TikTok, after we reported on the surveillance, launched an internal investigation and found themselves that my user data had been pulled for the purpose of trying to figure out who was leaking to me. And they did that by using my IP address-based location and sort of checking that against the IP address location of various employees to sort of see if we'd been at the same place at the same time. So literally, because we all know that that the, the Communist Party is a, quote, partner, and I'm doing air quotes, with most big Chinese companies, it appears that the, the Chinese government, through ByteDance, through TikTok, was tracking your physical location. So ByteDance and TikTok were tracking my physical location, and we know that some of the people involved in the surveillance were based in China. Whether the Chinese government had access to that data is not something that I have reported on. How does that feel? I, I'm, I'm jumpy just talking to you about it. Well, the fact that ByteDance and TikTok know which restaurants and cafes I like to go to, it, it's inappropriate. It's bad. They shouldn't have done it. But I I don't live my life in perpetual fear. Um, and, and I think it was a terrible mistake for this company. This is both of these companies have been trying desperately to convince Washington that U.S. user data will not be accessed by people in China except when it's absolutely necessary for them to do their jobs and that data is really tightly controlled. Here, we had a team that had access to my data and pulled it for the purposes yeah. of following my location. Well, and and, and I want to tell our viewers why. I mean, first off, it's just personally terrifying and, and good for you for not being worried. But as a journalist, let's say I'm meeting a source out to, who's going to like, you know, having a coffee or a beer and they're going to tell me something really important. And now we're tracking, they're like, okay, well, Brian was here and this guy was here at the same time. Clearly there's our leaker, right? This could, this could just discourage people from speaking up about critical, critical issues. That's absolutely right. And ByteDance and TikTok said in their internal investigation that they didn't actually find anything from pulling my user data. And I'm very relieved to hear that because, yeah, the thing that's scary here is not that they're following me. It's that they're trying to figure out who's talking to me and who's talking to me about really important national security questions. People come to us because they want the public to know what they know. Yeah. And I am grateful to those people for taking the risk to say this is so important that we need to we need to tell people about it. Uh, Emily Baker White, we appreciate you telling us about it. Uh, it's a scary story. I mean, literally physically tracking people's locations. We know that people do it, but not the government of China. Emily, thank you. All right, shifting gears. Speaking of China, Chinese President Xi Jinping will be visiting Russia next week. This will be Xi's first trip to Russia since their invasion of Ukraine a year ago. And the meeting is at the request of Russian President Vladimir Putin. The Kremlin has released a statement saying the meeting will focus on, quote, development of the comprehensive partnership and strategic cooperation between the two countries. Joining us now is former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton. Ambassador Bolton, welcome. And there's another big story I want to get to breaking in The New York Times about COVID. But first, this. What do you think is going to happen at this meeting? Are China and Russia just becoming more dangerously interwoven? Well, I think there's no question about it. I think they've got at least an entente going here, and it could well be developing into an axis. You know, China is the, really the big winner so far in the Russian invasion in Ukraine. 
if if Russia succeeds in in capturing all or, or another big part of Ukraine, China's allies want a big victory. That's good for China. If Russia is defeated, uh, that will drive Russia more into China's arms. That's a victory for China too. So this relationship between China and Russia is really senior partner to junior partner, and I think they're going to have a talk about how to proceed. I hate to even ask this Friday, it's St. Patrick's Day, Ambassador, but is there any chance at all of sort of a, a, an increased conflict with, with Europe, with the West, Poland, first NATO country to provide jets? Where does this go? Well, I, I don't think there's any possible threat of Russian conventional escalation, although the United States, the Biden administration, has been deterred by Russia for over a year, worried that if we give this weapon system or that weapon system, something's going to happen. Where, where's Russia's hidden army, by the way? It's doing so well in Ukraine today. Where, where exactly is the good army that's going to threaten us? Uh, what we need on, on our part is a strategy, and we don't have one yet. If we don't have goals that are clearly stated, it's hard to develop a strategy. So this war of attrition uh, is ultimately, I think, bad for uh, the U.S., Ukraine, and NATO because it gives Russia more of an opportunity in a war of attrition ultimately to come out victorious. Uh, Ambassador, I'm going to put you on the spot here just a little bit. Uh, I apologize for that. There's a story breaking just now in The New York Times and the headline is crossing basically the WHO, the World Health Organization, is accusing China of withholding data on COVID's origins. Again, this is a story in the New York Times. I basically just glanced through it, so I'm going to summarize it as quickly as I can. There was some d- data on a scientific database about these raccoon dogs in the, in the wet market that may have helped spread it. That evidence is now missing I'm not exactly sure which way this story is going as far as what they're actually accusing China of. But, Ambassador, your reaction to the fact that there's a lot that's starting to come out about China's role in this, at least from a what did they know and when. And this is the WHO, which you got to admit has not exactly been hard hitting on China. Right. I'm just shocked that the WHO has finally said China's lying about something. Look, th- this, is a, this is a real problem. Uh, China's obviously concealed data uh, about the origins of COVID, the effect of COVID inside China. Uh, to me, it's a very clear indication that there was heavy government involvement in this. Uh, I don't think it came from the wet market in Wuhan. China has a biological weapons program. Uh, I'm not saying that this was deliberate, but I think the Wuhan lab is sort of the open uh, uh, aspect of it and the weaponization is done somewhere else. Uh, I have very little doubt the leak came from the lab. And what China is doing by putting on this latest information and taking it off, I think it I think it's uh, throwing smoke away from the Wuhan lab, but back to the wet market. Yeah, I want to be clear. That's your opinion is low confidence Department of Energy, which means they believe it just low, low confidence FBI, medium confidence. But it's out there in the WHO. It's a hell of a story. It's breaking. I just posted it on my Twitter. Ambassador Bolton, appreciate it. And thank you for coming on, sir. Glad to be with you. Thank you. Coming up, we go back in time, more than four centuries. That's like 400 years. And the start of one of St. Patrick's Day's greatest ever traditions. All right, last up on Last Call. It's always trivia time. We love trivia. Do you know where the first St. Patrick's Day parade was held 422 years ago tonight? It was not 
in Ireland. In fact, it was in St. Augustine, Florida. Records show an Irish vicar organized the first St. Patrick's Day parade in the Spanish colony in 1601. Now the green parades are held nationwide, but celebrating St. Patrick's Day also costs some serious green. According to the National Retail Federation, Americans are estimated to spend nearly $7 billion on the holiday. You could probably guess what a lot of that spending goes on. Now, the average American is expected to consume 4.2 drinks on St. Patrick's Day. Be careful out there, folks. The Booze Fest ranks third among the most popular drinking days in America. What are the other ones? We don't even know. It's got to be 4th of July and I don't know what. Christmas? Anyway, hey, happy St. Patrick's Day to all my friends out there and my wife and all of her friends partying in Chicago tonight. Best city in America for St. Patrick's Day. Hope you're watching. Love you guys. Love all my friends. Well, you don't have to go home, but I do. That is it for your last call. We will see you on Monday. Slancha. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.